Welcome back to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox, two rather insecure creative frauds who will be exploring the motivating and sometimes debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower if you let it. I don't know about you, Michael, but I feel like Austin Powers now. That music is so us. <laughs> it's so us. It's so us. I always there's always a sniff of espionage whenever you leave a room. How can now... you not listen to that in poor martinis? Like they're causing trouble. So we're back. We're back with season we two. Are. Absolutely yeah. nobody asks for it, but we're back anyway. And they said it wouldn't last. No, and and it is kind of. Look, we we talked to some amazing people in the last. Um, series and um, this time round, we're um, broadening the net a little bit, aren't we? Because we found that um, it's not just creatives in advertising; it's creatives in maybe it's not even just creatives. It's all kinds of people that um, have these imposterous feelings. We've got some great guests, haven't we, Michael? Yeah, we do. They're all um, they're all on our website, which, like the music, is looking very new and very fresh um, for for season two. All ready to go. Feels like that should be, be some sort of badge, fresh and new for season two. Oh, it rhymes. So for this new season, we've cast the net a bit wider. I mean, we started talking to CMOs, those people on the other side of the table, and we've talked to psychologists. In fact, we've even spoken to the world expert on imposter syndrome, and she was brilliant. She was amazing. She knows astronauts and everything, and and other creatives and all sorts of other people, Michael, haven't we? Yeah, we've got TV hosts, directors, producers, um, a whole range of guests, along with um, some of the best advertising creatives going around talking about uh, their insecurities and fears, which we love. And Barack Obama as well, which was a surprise. Yeah, who would have thought? He didn't give that away at all. Um, But to start off uh, a new season and new guests, we have a guest within a guest. We have Laura Petricelli and Jeff Goodby to kick us off with season two. Jeff's amazing. He's done all the things, hasn't he? Yeah. Let's um, go to that. (laughs) (laughs) Stop changing things. I love it. It's keeping it interesting. Or should we make the intro a song? Just, just Do you want to make the intro song? You guys are having too much fun, and I'm not even on this thing. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> make it work. You are, though. That was going in all sorts of directions. Jeff, you, you never behave yourself. I mean, this is magic yet, huh? Okay. This yeah. is close to magic. It's close. What we're discovering is that pretty much everybody we talk to has some form of imposter syndrome or has learned to change their relationship with it, and that's actually what makes them really good at what they do. You know, that feeling that you don't belong, that that feeling that um, you need to prove yourself can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing. Laura was really kind to join us on one of our first ones. You're an imposter? Oh, wait. wait. She wasn't even invited. She just came. <laughs> I didn't even listen to her. And I probably would learn a lot if I did. I just showed up, gave it a crack. You brought um, Jeff along for us. I don't know if you want to do a quick intro, Laura. Yeah. Thank you, guys. 
Well, this, this topic so awesome. And I think there's no better person really to have on it than Jeff. Uh, for all the listeners, you probably know Jeff Goodby as the got milk guy, which he certainly is. Um, he definitely wrote that line and millions of others that have shaped advertising as we know it. But he's also one of the most fearless creative leaders in the industry. He's reinvented this industry time and time again. I have no doubt he'll continue to do that. He says things at work like never walk to work the same way twice because you never know what you'll find and don't act like a creative, act like a vandal. And he does it all with this really long silver ponytail and a pair of Birkenstocks, my personal favorite. Uh, he hired me to work with him at Goodby Silverstein and Partners seven years ago. In fact, he actually stole me from Michael Knox, which we can talk about here. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, this better be good, Jeff. This could be the makeup deal. This is the makeup. Oh my God. <laughs> makeup or breakup? Feeling some pressure now. There we go. I know this is actually a therapy session. I thought we'd bring everyone together. Um, but I, handled, I, I handled it reasonably well. You handled it very well. <laughs> oh, thanks. You handled it very well. So I really, honestly, can't believe that this legacy human has any level of an imposter vibe to him. But we're we're going to find out. It's the point of this podcast. So this is Jeff Goodby, everyone. Welcome, okay, Jeff. Laura was like the best interview in history. You know, I met her on Skype and I was like, oh, my God, she is going to be such a big star. It's amazing. And I'm sorry that I'm stealing her from you, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's still opportunity for Laura to employ me, so maybe it's not so bad. (laughs) That's that's, that's exactly why I hired her, because I knew that she would employ all of us eventually. Okay, this is about you, Jeff, not me. Let's do it. So, Jeff, let's get going. The Internet tells us you went to Harvard. You wrote for the uh, the Lampoon there. And as a newspaper guy, you were drawn to the wit of advertising. So much so that you took time to sit down and create a portfolio of made-up ads. And that landed you a job at an agency. Then you went to JWT. And then at JWT, you saw that actually a lot of the work wasn't great, but you had a great, smart, fun CD. And that's where you found all these opportunities. Just to kick things off, you know, that idea of being... Walking into an agency, which is a super intimidating place, lots of egos, but also lots of opportunity. How do you get the confidence to sort of embrace those opportunities? My God, I have no idea looking back. I, I mean, I got to tell you, it's, it, is, it is a really good question because when you're in that situation, um, I moved to San Francisco. I looked for a newspaper job because I had been in newspapers. I couldn't get one. And I was like, Maybe advertising would be interesting. And I knew nothing about it. The internet didn't exist. I mean, nowadays you'd go online and look things up and learn about, but I was just walking in as a total idiot. So I would get the yellow pages out and like uh, go down and call people up and go, can I get an interview? Can I get an interview? And sometimes you would walk into a place with, uh, you know, two guys that were stoned. And then the next day you would walk into BBDO San Francisco and it would be like, Wow, everybody's wearing a suit. What's this about? And uh, it was it was definitely an imposter situation. Like I was living in a campground at the time in, in a Volkswagen bus in a campground. I would take a shower, like come to San Francisco and like walk into VBDO looking like I was, you know, successful. And of course I was not. And, um, you know, and the thing that gets you out of being an imposter is often more important than the balls that you have to be one. And that is that I finally walked into McCann Erickson on a day when um, Charles Martel, the creative director, had a minute to talk to me. And he said, you know, you're never going to get a job with these newspaper things that you've written. They're nice and they're really good newspaper stories, but 
advertising people are not going to relate to this. So you need to do something that advertising people will relate to. And, and I, and I was like that a lot of people might've said that, but then he said, I want you to go home and like pick three campaigns that you hate and write new ads in them, pick three campaigns that you like and write new ads in them, invent a new product for two companies and write an, an autobiography that's a half page long so that you're not using this really boring um, resume that you're using and, uh, and make it funny to show that you're not a jerk, that you'd be fun to work with. The last thing was the most important thing. Like that's how I got a job. And I, I got it as soon as I did this, especially the last thing, which, you know, uh, nowadays I realized that that much advertising is supposed to take you like two or three months to write, but I didn't know that at the time. So I think I wrote it in about a week. I've like made this book really quickly. Xeroxed it as it were then and took it into J. Walter Thompson and got a job immediately. Like, you know, it was amazing. Was I an imposter? Kind of, but only insofar as I admitted I had never worked in advertising before. And uh, and I was lucky enough to have somebody think that was interesting. You know, I mean, in a way, when people go along with your imposterness, they are rewarded by it many times, which is that's a, that's a little law that I just figured out in my head. Actually, when they go along with you being an imposter, they're often rewarded by by your gutsiness and by the creative freedom that you feel when you're doing that. I really believe in the creative freedom of, you know, messing things up and throwing bricks through windows as much as possible and in getting away with it and running away and seeing it the next day, as Laura said, vandalism is the word that I use for it. And that's what I love about advertising is that it can be vandalism at its best. It gives you the same, it's exactly the same feeling that I felt when I was a kid and we would vandalize things. <laughs> but I, I did throw exit houses. You know, we did smash pumpkins against the side of people's cars. You know, we, we, did, we did things that were really irritating, never, never horrible, but they were, they were just good enough that they were really exciting to uh, refer to the next day. There's something about those childhood kind of stories, isn't there, that gives you confidence to kind of keep telling them, like those stories of throwing eggs against a house, like the <laughs> stories that stick. Those, those stories that stick. And a lot of times the things that happen to you in childhood are incredibly um, motivating later in life. I've been um, listening to a book that I would, um, I would endorse to everybody here that um, George Carlin wrote just before he died. It's called Last Words. And his brother reads it in the audio book. It is so motivating to listen to him talk about the stories in his childhood. And it, and it reminded me of one day, and I grew up in New England, you know, a sort of cold part of America. Um, one day I got into a fight with a guy named Jimmy Coppola. I hope he's listening to this because I'm still pissed. <laughs> I got into a fight with him in the backyard in about two feet of snow. And he like got me face down in the snow, jumped on top of me and kept shoveling snow into my face. And so basically I lost that fight and really badly. And, um, but I still remember the feeling of having your face full of snow and being able to stand up and go, Hey, I'm not dead. I'm good. You know? And I think that's an important, that's an important thing to learn. You know, you get your face full of snow, 
but you stand up and you go home. Your mom makes you dinner. You know, I mean, that was an important. You're ready to fight another day. <laughs> I'm ready to do another one. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, I, I find that really interesting because I feel like the way that you react to CMOs, I've you actually inspire them to be okay to fail as well, to fall face first in a pile of snow. Like you, you've you've had meetings. I presented stuff to you before, and I'm like, I don't know if they're going to go for this. And you're like, they've kind of got to go for something brave, or it, or they're going to fail. It's it, you know, it's a um, it's a contagious thing. You know, um, yeah. We we all want that. So if somebody in the room stands up and represents it, there's something. There's there's a germ of that inside everybody. You just have to access it. You know, so somebody in the room will stand up and do something and it'll be likable and it'll be like, this is never going to work. I know you guys won't buy this, but you got to hear it. And people access that little germ of um, naughtiness inside them. Suddenly it's there. And they're like, that would be interesting. <laughs> and that, you know, it, it, it's a gift. It's a gift that you can give people because they've already got it inside themselves. It's a gift to have them step forward and, and exercise it. And that was the Vienna Wood Dancing D, one of my all-time favorites. And now let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there. Hello? Hello, for $10,000, who shot... Excuse me? I'm afraid your time is almost up. I'm sorry, maybe next time. There's a famous quote, which I'm going to completely mangle now. The creative is the child that survived, right? Is that every, everybody starts brilliantly open-minded and creative, and then the world just kind of bit by bit closes us down. And just listening to how you're talking about that is kind of like almost the really fun, mischievous, stupid ideas. Big reason why clients buy them is because it kind of allows them to go back to that a bit. To be a kid again is a really good description of the feeling that I'm talking about, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what you're looking for. I remember um, there's a German guy that interviewed me and he said, why are you creative? I said, to cheat death. And he was like, whoa, that's heavy. I said, but the real reason is, it is that. That's why people are, that's why we all want to be creative is, you know, we want to make something that is lasting, that people see that if we die, it's still there. You know, um, that it's so that it's so humorous or so sticky or so wonderful that if I get hit by a truck, it's still there the next day. You know, that's what we all want. And, and what you're talking about now is really interesting because it is the thing that makes you make something like that. You know, why would you do it? Why do you take a chance in a business? And, you know, how do you get in a position working in in business? to um to take a chance and and say something to a client you know i mean we're very lucky if we get that chance and when you do get the chance you should take it <laughs> frankly and i excuse it when people take it and fuck it up i'm laura will um will back this up i'm pretty understanding about that because you know 
Talk about imposters. Like I've had to really clean up a lot of messes in my time. I could explain anything. <laughs> could you tell us like a, a famous mess or something that you can remember? Well, I do. I do remember we worked for Sega for a number of years back when the Sega Genesis, you guys, you guys probably. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Mega Drive. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, you know, and it was like us against Nintendo and, and it was, you know what, it was us being the bratty bad kids against Nintendo being the kids that got good grades. That's what mm. we wanted it to be. It was like, who want, we want to be like, you know, the Sex Pistols. And those guys are like some kind of four-part harmony thing from the book. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so we did a lot of naughty things. But one of them was a parody of Jacques Cousteau. But basically... the. The, the the lawyers said to me, um, your idea for this is going to be just too close to Jacques Cousteau himself. It's going to look like him. It's going to sound like him. And, you know, there was there was like a, uh, a voiceover, a big ship out in the sea. And it was like, you know, day 24, you know, it was like French voiceover. And, you know, my, my crew is waiting for me to, you know, it's like and, uh, really exactly Jacques Cousteau. He has a knit cap on, smoking <laughs> Um, and and, and uh, I have a lawyer friend who was at the Harvard Lampoon with me, who's an extreme right wing guy, very smart. He was um, special counsel to President Reagan here. And he um, he said to me, it's the First Amendment. You know, you're allowed to your parody is covered on the First Amendment. You know, you're allowed to do that. So so we told him to run it and um, we got sued by the Cousteau Society for like two and a half million dollars or something, which we didn't have. We were a tiny company at the time, you know, and um, and Rich Silverstein, my partner, knew somebody who knew Cousteau's son. And um, so I ended up on the phone with Cousteau's son. And I said, you know, we will we can't we don't have two and a half million dollars. I said, uh, we will do like flags for you and, you know, um, posters and stuff, whatever you want us to do. And he said, oh, you don't understand. My dad actually just sues people to get money. This is about money. They don't want flags. They don't want posters. They don't want any of that shit. We want money. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went back to the lawyers and it was like, okay. And then we ended up, you know, somehow ponying up like over a million dollars to pay this off. So when I say I can explain anything, I guess I'm wrong. Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk and the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, what makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son? And what was my answer? I must have said something, right? when you guys said imposters, it reminded me of, I mean, whenever we do a new business pitch, you are an imposter. Come on, you are. 
You don't know enough about that business to tell people what to do with it. It's ridiculous, you know? And so that is the, that is the ultimate kind of imposterness is to walk into a room and tell people that think about this thing 24 hours a day and have worked there for decades, what they should do with their business. You know, you're like an, an art school knucklehead or something. And you're telling some person that, you know, at GM, what to do with their business. It's absolutely crazy. Now, my my excuse for that is that you have a perspective on that business that they don't have. You're coming from the outside. You you're an art person. You're a writer. You have a perspective on that business that they can never have because they have worked there because they're inside it. You're outside it, which is very valuable. But it's incredibly ballsy of us to walk into a place and go, "This is what you should do." You know, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing that we get away with it, and it, we do it every day. Hundreds of th- thousands of us do it every day, which is crazy. But what I was going to say, which reminded me of this, is back when we um, first went into business, we would do like all-nighters. I would never do an all-nighter now. I hope Laura still won't, but I I won't do any all-nighters. But I used to do all-nighters. And um, we faced a a new business pitch for um, United States Line, which was a cruise line that had one ship that they had bought that was a very famous ship back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it actually still held the speed record from New York to London and back. <clears throat> it was a very, very fast ship. So they had bought that ship and they were going to try to revive the line. And we worked for days, didn't come up with anything. On the on the day before the pitch, one of our illustrators came in with a really beautiful stamp that he had designed for the uh, with the ship on. So he came in with this great post office stamp. It was gorgeous. You know, it was like... It was like something back in the 30s, like crossing the ocean on a beautiful ship, United States line and so on. You you could imagine it just evoked they're in business. It's real. They have a fucking stamp. By midnight, the only good thing we had was the stamp. It was about this big. um, Did you put it on a flag, Jeff? We put it on a flag. We blew it up. We made it into everything by the next day. We made it into everything. I love the sort of the rally rousing you should do. It's okay. It's okay. We've got this. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what it, was. it was just the stamp the next day. <laughs> Jeff, on that topic, when you guys first started out, like I know you just talked about new business pitches and you kind of walking into the boardroom basically as an imposter pretending that you know their business better than they do. What was your first client and how did you even get your foot in the door with them? Well, we started the company because we worked on a freelance account called uh, Amazing Software. And it became, we renamed it Electronic Arts. So it became like a big game company. Yeah. So we named that company. And then um, we did a few ads for them, one of which really was popular amongst the, um, it's weird, but it became sort of a B2B ad early on, which was a magazine ad that showed Rich went out and shot their programmers, the, the artists that made the, the games, shot them as if they were like, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash, like they were, you know, a bunch of guys in black shirts, like looking really hard ass women too. Um, and, you know, in this really cool photograph and, and Andy and I wrote a headline that said, can a computer make you cry? And people in the business went nuts. They were like, that is such a weird proposition. Of course, that kind of thing now seems 
it happens. But in those days, it was pretty crazy. And so EA got a lot of notoriety from that ad, and they were able to hire the best programmers in the business, partly, partly because of that photograph. The photograph said, if you come work here, you're going to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to hang out with people like this. Yeah. And that was, that was actually very magical. And I went um, 25 years later, I went to their 25th anniversary, which is a while ago now. And, um, and they, they made me wear a little button that had the ad on it that said, can a computer make you cry? And I walked around the place and engineers were coming up to me. These got these programmers saying, that's why I work at this company. I saw that ad. It was great. You wow. Know, lots of them. It was pretty cool. In terms of imposters, we, we didn't know anything about video games. We actually knew about records. So we crossed over and made video games into what we knew, which was record covers. And we made like little record covers for them. Nobody had done that at that point. We interviewed the, the makers of the games and, you know, and we tried to make the, the people that programmed the games into, into rock stars so that you'd follow the next game that she made or something, you know? And um, that nobody had done that at that point. So our paradigm in the record business, and Richard worked at Rolling Stone, and of course, we were all like, you know, 33 and a third people. We, uh, that, that was what we knew. And, and uh, we went out and got the best illustrators to paint the covers and, and made them look really cool. They looked like, they looked like uh, album covers. And, the, you know, Andy and I went out and interviewed these guys and wrote really bratty, interesting copy inside the, the covers. And um, yeah, that's, that's how we started. And one day, Bing Gordon, who was the, uh, the marketing guy there, said, um, do you guys want to sign a contract to do our covers? Like, you know, and, and, I, and I thought to him, I said to him, well, you know, we're really hoping not to be like a packaging company. We really want to be like do TV commercials and big idea things and stuff. And he said, OK, well, it would pay $40,000 a month. I said, I think we could do it. Yeah, you know, I think we're a packaging. No, guy. I love packaging. <laughs> I'm a packaging guy. Uh, that packaging. Comcastic Labs field test. New high-speed internet. A rabbit. A rabbit genetically modified and bred with a panther. A rabbit genetically modified and bred with a panther with turbines attached. A rabbit slash panther with turbines backed by an unusually strong tailwind on ice. The rabbit panther thingy with turbines and tailwind on ice shaved with a cold forged high glide surgical grade razor. The whole rabbit panther turbine tailwind hairless razor scenario, driven by an over-caffeinated fighter pilot with a lead foot, all traveling down a ski jump in Switzerland under better than ideal conditions. The fastest fast is here. Introducing the new Comcast high-speed internet. Now with the fastest speeds out there. Michael, you got a question? Yeah, I was going to ask um, Jeff about... You, I've heard you talk about rejection and you kind of make rejection sound like fun. And I, I do love the idea that you can make, you know, rejection part of this process and it's almost heroic. 
the way I've heard you um, speak of it, and, and even starting over and separating yourself from the negative feedback. Yeah, yeah. Can, can we talk Wait, a bit about that? That's a good way to put it, Michael. I've never really thought of separating yourself from the negative feedback, but that's what you're doing. And, and it's not easy to do. Um, but, you know, having, <laughs> having been rejected a whole bunch of times, I, I, I decided that, you know, you needed to, you need to, this creativity is really about like taking in a lot of stuff and recombining it in new ways. Okay. And when you get rejected, what, what people are really saying to you is somehow you haven't recombined this stuff in a way that's um, affecting them or moving them or they think is right. And there are millions of ways of recombining things in the world. And you have to have faith in yourself to be able to go out and find new things and recombine them in new ways. And I think, you know, it's a business of rejection. And if you can't handle rejection, the, the very best people not only handle rejection, but they see it as kind of an opportunity to either convince the client that you were right in the first place or to, to, to change it and go forward. You know, Laura's really good at this. Um, to listen, to, to listen to what somebody's saying. You're really comparing your intelligence with something that's going on in their head. And a lot of creative people don't listen. They just are like, I got this thing, I wanna sell it. And if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm not gonna change it. And changing is a slippery slope, as we all know, but starting over is not. And many times when you start over, you actually come up with something that, you know, in retrospect is way better than what you started out with. I mean, I am lucky enough to have started over many times and had that happen. And I can tell you that many times that's been a much better way to go than to chip away, change this, make it, you know, change this guy into another character, don't have her say this until the thing is unrecognizable, you know? Starting over is powerful. And, and it also that's a... about you, by the way, when you start, when you, when you are willing to start over, it says something about you that makes clients trust you from then on. Do you think that's a relationship with time then? Is that about not being in a crazy hurry to get this idea that you have going or is what what is that is that, is that confidence that you know you'll come back with better well you have to look at the timeline and go you know there are certain jobs that you can act this way on and others you can't you know i mean there are some others especially nowadays that you got to get done really quickly and so this process is sped up and you have to have a, um, a speed up motor in your head that, that makes it happen. That goes like, okay, I'm judging this. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell her that I'll change it the way that she wants to. I'm not going to use an elephant instead of a dog. And I'm going to just throw the whole thing away and start over before tomorrow morning. And you have to have the faith in yourself to do that. And, and by the way, it's, it's a very, very valuable faith. You know, it you it is rewarded more often than not. I think that's such great advice. Another of our chats we had, we talked about how you start off presenting this idea that you're really passionate about, and then you get into that horrible sort of death of a thousand cuts as it goes through the system at the at the client side, and you sort of make a few little compromises here and there, and then like a few weeks down the line, you're sort of in pre-production. You look at look at the script and go, 
what the fuck happened here? <laughs> this is not what I presented. And you find yourself making something that you really don't like anymore, but it's your script. It's just been messed around with so much. And um, I think your thought about you have to, it's your responsibility for that idea to then say stop, or even just, as you say, take it off the table and go, you know what? This isn't good anymore. We need to start again. It's a really table. hard thing to do. But... but Graham, think about the thing that you just said. You get to yeah. that point where you're chipping away at it, you're changing this and so on. You don't like it anymore. Then you put it out into the world and it turns out that it's not really good. And so the client doesn't like it then. So it wrecks your relationship with the client. If you start over, if you have the confidence to go, yeah, that was a nice try. You know, let's just start over. I'm going to go back and start over. I'm going to be back in a couple of days with something new. If you have that confidence in yourself, it actually makes the relationship better in the future. You buy yourself trust in the future. Whereas the other thing that you were talking of destroys trust, mm. right? It does. I mean, I've done it. I've been on both sides of this thing, frankly. On, on I, that theme, actually, you talk about the power of telling the truth and the confidence of honesty, about being true to yourself, having that honest relationship with clients, which is absolutely when the good stuff happens. And, you know, you talk about truth a lot, I'd like to hear more about finding the truth inside a problem and how advertising is finding a new way to tell the truth. That's kind of what we do. Another quote, which I love, all we have as creatives is how we see the world. That's what we sell. What we sell is how we see things. And for you, it feels like that would be telling the truth, finding a new way of telling the truth. Well, you know, whenever you tell people you're in advertising, they figure that you're in the business of not telling the truth. And I, I think you're exactly the opposite. You know, when you don't tell the truth, who was it? It was like John Wanamaker or somebody said, you know, the best way to kill a product is to advertise it. <laughs> it's to kill a bad product. The best way to kill a bad product is to advertise it well. And, and, um, and, and that's true. You know, I mean, you need to find something true about the product that delivers that that seems true at the other end of the pipe when somebody experiences it or buys the product. It doesn't seem like you misled them. Not only that, but you usually find the most interesting and arresting things about the world when you're looking for true things instead of when you're looking to mislead people, you know. We are all humans here. And I know that, you know, advertising is supposed to be this Don Draper thing where, you know, you come in and blow people away and and then you leave and everybody is like, holy shit, we'll buy it. And that's great. It's really much more about having somebody else understand your vision of the world um, as a creative person and go, you know, I just remixed these five things and made them into something that right now is a little disturbing because you've never seen them mixed together. But but people like to see them mixed together and your product is in the middle of this, you know, and um, and you have to be patient with people. And like Laura says, many times those I mean, Hal Reine, who's an advertising legend in the U.S. that I who I work for. He said, you know, if you can get a relationship to the CEO, to, to the people that actually make the decisions, that's the best imaginable thing. Because you can sit down with him or her and go, this is why we are doing this. And you can explain what you're showing. You're not just showing and talking at people. You're trying to explain why it's relevant, why it's going to work. So true. So true. You know, like... 
And Andy Berlin, who's one of the original partners at Goodby Silverstein Partners, said to me, our job is to take the head of the client off their body and put it on our own head and like see <laughs> and see the world through their eyes and see what we look like as we talk to them. That's our job. I thought that was a great piece of advice. You know? Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has been so much fun. And I, I feel like every time we have a conversation, you have a million other stories I haven't heard before. So I feel like we could do this all day. Right. Well, I'm not repeating. No, you, you're certainly not. Um, and I guess like just to kind of wrap it all up, what is it that has you so excited still about, about this world, especially that's changing so much? It looks so different to when you began. How do, how do we all keep excited? Uh, if you can't get excited about, you know, taking the experiences of your life and the things that you've learned and sort of recombining them in a way that makes um, that makes other people find them interesting or, you know, your own experience interesting in the heads of other people, then, you know, you're not going to like this business. You, 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 have, you have to have the feeling that, you know, you grew up in a place, you learned a lot, you found this guy funny, she wasn't funny, he beat you up, this didn't happen. And you're going to take all those experiences and put them together and make them into something that somebody else finds likable, unforgettable. What a great thing to do for a job, you know? It's a great job in that way. Just get the snow shoveled into your face and you'll be fine. I used to be fed grass. I had neighbours that would hold me down and feed me grass, make me eat the grass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's because you in Australia, you don't get snow there, right? You're yeah. Special. yeah, I stopped the grass. I don't, I don't know if they're listening either, but they were girls. And so you know, maybe that affected me more. So maybe we'll stay on this call after we stop recording and you can all help me through that or at least turn it into an ad. Yeah. You can turn it into something. Thanks, this Jeff. It's been great talking to you today. Yeah, that was incredible. Is that enough? Yes, All right, you guys. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks very much. No, that was so so much great. fun. Thank you, so Jeff. Fun. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. everybody. You guys, you were fun to talk to. The Imposterist is produced by Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, the best music and sound house in Australia. The theme music that you're listening to now was created by Hilton Mode of the same company. If you would like to catch up on the other episodes in this series or previous, visit theimposterous.com. For all other updates or to make contact, follow us on Instagram at the underscore imposterous.